I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Mernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Cool. On this episode, it's just <laughs> it's just Dean and I, and we're talking about a big, important question, the question of nationalism. We've uh, talked about it a little bit in previous weeks about Biden, but this week we're going to really get into it. So throughout the life of The Magnificast, we've definitely shared a bit of our story about how we became... The guys with the Christian Communist Podcast. We've definitely told that story a few times. So go back, find it yourself, I guess. We don't need to go into it in depth here, but a pretty big part of that story for us and probably for a lot of other Christians out there, too, who are listening, uh, just kind of hinges on the uh, hinges on grappling with uh, the problems of patriotism, nationalism and uh, religious expression and Christianity. Uh, those three things, I think, definitely did a lot for Dean and I kind of figuring out mm-hmm. like how uh, how Christians need to respond to those things. Um, well, largely, U.S. Christianity, uh, evangelical or otherwise, have really interesting but very complicated relationships to uh, nationalism. And in this episode, we're going to figure out some of those things and maybe uh, find some more helpful ways to think about nationalism <laughs> beyond just the, uh, the the Trumpism and Bidenism of it all. So you might be thinking to yourself, but Matt and Dean, why should we care so much about religion and nationalism? Trump is out of the White House, and now we have the most liberal president in history. Uh, in case you couldn't tell, <laughs> that was my nerd voice uh, for all you Joe Biden fans out there. Um, so this way of thinking seems to be the norm at the moment, and I think a lot of people feel that way. And if if, if you if uh, this moment where Biden is president helps give you some sense of relief and lets you take a breath, then just take that big that big Joe Biden breath, do it. But um, when you're done taking that breath, come back to this podcast and <laughs> listen to us talk about how bad it is. <laughs> so the um, the overt religious nationalism that uh, you know featured heavily in the Trump regime is definitely out, so that's good. Um, but a new, vaguely liberal religious nationalism with all kinds of other characteristics is definitely ascendant with Biden. And figuring out what we're supposed to do with that is going to be a really important kind of thing for the coming years. So... Um, we should spend some time thinking about that. Yeah, we talked about that a bunch so far. Um, a few episodes now, just drilling down into the Biden presidency, what we thought was going to happen with all that. And we gestured toward liberal Christian nationalism at that time in a, a pretty big way. But it's important to revisit it. Um, I think also one of the keys to this conversation is going to be to dive a little bit more deeply into uh, revolutionary ideas of nationalism and thinking through how we can have a more complicated and even less U.S.-centric vision of nationalism. 
So, you know, the, the conservative forms of religious nationalism are really gross. Uh, liberal nationalism is gross in its own way. Rather than being a kind of in-your-face Christofascism, it takes this subtle approach that promotes the, the prestige and grandeur of Christian supremacy, even though sometimes it doesn't know that it's doing that. Um, so instead of, you know, the president, like, misquoting a Bible verse just uh, on a podium, we get a, a president, who, president who plasters flags on cathedrals or things like that, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. So in light of all that, we'll talk through some of the uh, nationalist discourse from our particular Christian Marxist perspective and bring that to bear on the current moment. Um, one temptation that people might have, and that for a long time I had, would be to kind of say, okay, if if the Trump nationalism is bad and the Biden nationalism is bad, then maybe nationalism altogether is always bad and always the same everywhere. And so the, the key is to always avoid being a nationalist. And this is something a lot of Christians uh, do, especially in the U.S., for, I think, good intuitive reasons, right? People don't want to be associated with the gross power of the U.S. nation-state, and you shouldn't. That is always extremely bad. <laughs> uh, but it's also important to say... Uh, to ask the question of are all nationalisms the same or bad around the whole world? You know, what's the difference between, let's say, Cuban nationalism, which is, you know, 90 miles away from U.S. nationalism in Florida? Uh, and how can we sort of parse out those differences and maybe have a more complicated Christian way of thinking through how Christians have engaged nationalism in revolutionary projects, which is very different from engaging it in a reactionary project like the United States? So we're going to get there. Uh, before we do, hold tight. We are going to rehearse a little bit the kind of contours of Christian nationalism under Trump and Biden, and then talk a little bit more about that uh, resistance to nationalism as a whole before we get to the Marxist stuff. But Matt, let me turn it over to you to bring us back to uh, our old friend Donald here. <laughs> Thank you, our old friend Donald. Um, sure. So, yeah, like Dean said, before we get into the the good stuff, <laughs> the good the good case studies of revolutionary nationalism and how um, socialists and communists and others have figured out the question of nationalism. Let's just talk about uh, what it might look like kind of coming out of this the, the Trump zone, as I'm going to call it right now. <laughs> so um, uh, the conservative Christianity of the Bush years, let's start there, maybe was marked by all kinds of things like uh, all, all kinds of like cultural wars over uh, like anti-abortion struggles, um, the, the baptizing of the war in Iraq and in Afghanistan, uh, a very religious and kind of sentimentalist approach to 9-11. That was a big part of it, I think. Um, LGBTQ rights played into it quite a bit. And, uh, you know, you can't forget also the uh, the classics, the war on Christmas. Mm -hmm. We're veterans of that one. <laughs> we're veterans we've done so many episodes on christmas supporting supporting the side that maybe we don't want to be a part of um i don't know i mean all of the all of these things though i think are pretty big uh characteristics of uh a certain type of early 2000s conservative christianity and i think in comparison to what we've seen in in the trump zone <laughs> this prior form of christianity uh this conservative christianity looks extremely tame i mean it's bad and shitty in its in its own way for sure but in comparison to what we've got now i think it's kind of uh interestingly uh, uh not not as sharp not as uh not as dangerous i guess is what i'm trying to say um so the Trump era gave us all kind uh, a kind of Christianity that's like rife with all sorts of syncretistic adaptations that merge together. The yeah, I mean the conservative Christianity of the Bush years for sure. That type of Christian supremacy that puts uh, Christian 
like social values above all else. Um, it kind of mixes that with a, a certain brand of vulgar American exceptionalism and also just a big mishmash of conspiratorial thinking that's introduced by movements like QAnon. Um, a big a big part of it, I think, actually is QAnon, but um, I don't. I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole for sure. Um, whether whether Trumpian Christians are exactly Q-pilled or not largely just doesn't matter in the end because this type of conspiratorial thinking has like leaked into the way that conservative Christians think and talk and just kind of like scaffold their knowledge of the world. And basically, I don't know, um, I'm not optimistic in any way about the recovery of those people's brains. And listen, I'm, I'm hoping for it every day, but I feel like it's going to be a pretty hard thing to undo. Um, a lot of sort of patterns of thought have been introduced into conservative and evangelical ways of thinking, and I don't know really what to do with them at this point. Um, Hollis Phelps, someone who we talked to on the show quite a while ago now, he wrote an, uh, an essay on QAnon and evangelicalism called QAnon is the Perfect Evangelical Conspiracy. Um, it was in the Bias magazine uh, from the Institute for Christian Socialism. Go back and read it. Listen to the episode. It's a cool one. Um, a good way to learn about Q if you don't know anything about this very weird thing. Um, Anyways, uh, he kind of puts it really well, sort of the, the mishmash of it all. Um, he writes this. Evangelicalism, especially in the last 50 years or so, has always had a soft spot for the apocalypse, for coded messages. It has in its more fundamental forms long harbored suspicions of designated evil actors and one world governments. QAnon is just the latest twist in this well-established tradition. QAnon is not the alternative religion that's coming for your church because it's already there and always has been, albeit in slightly different forms. Um, so all I'm trying to say here with this uh, this bit about Q and on is that um, uh, evangelical Christianity uh, or conservative Christianity, however you might want to think about it, it's always been incredibly nationalistic in a really particular way while um, always being suspicious of the government itself, which is a kind of funny thing. Uh, even when people like George W. Bush were in power or Trump were in power, um, <laughs> you know, they had literally, um, you know, the Republicans had a, um, a, a political hegemony at the time. And like uh, these folks still had an entire conspiracy theory based around the the deep state and how they were out to get them, even though they had the political power at the time. Um, so all that say uh, QAnon is kind of, uh, I think, playing on the the design of evangelical Christianity Um and it sets up and uh, and and maybe further is a type of nationalism that's bound up in this uh, form of conservatism that sets up America as God's chosen people, <laughs> while at the same time being like strangely anti-statist. Um, so na nationalistic while hating the government, I guess, is like the mm -hmm. is a is a way to put it. So um, it expresses a type of nationalism that I think is at it's in itself sort of a weird contradiction. Um, but uh, lots of lots of things going on here. Just a quick gloss on, on maybe the Trump the Trump stuff. So uh, if you're thinking to yourself that uh, I've missed something, I probably have. But uh, listen, we can't we can't do it all in this one episode. <laughs> yeah, we've been covering it for a long time. I feel like uh, it's time to uh, all of us, I think, can probably look at the, the Trump years as definitely the uh, a, a crowning achievement of that right wing Christian nationalism. Um, right. I don't know. So many scenes that you can pick. I, I think we all sort of intuitively understand what we're talking about when we think about Trump. Um for me, the scene that always sticks out is uh, Trump holding the Bible in front of that church in Washington after they tear gassed all the protesters out of it. Um, you know, just like a pure empty signifier. But the whole point is to kind of wield Christian power uh, on TV. Um, so we can kind of see that as an explicit, uh, awful, horrible thing. 
Um, I think it's harder, though, to figure out the liberal Christian stuff, which, again, is fresh for regular listeners, but worth rehearsing a little bit here. You know, I think um, if you're really cynical, and sometimes I am too, or if you're like uh, extremely ultra leftist or whatever, it's tempting to maybe say the the Christian nationalism of Biden and his supporters is just sort of a better wrapped version of the the Christian nationalism that we saw in Trump. Um, but I think it's important to parse out the specifics here uh, to understand the differences, but also because you have to be able to to know what you're fighting against. So, you know, the liberal version of U.S. nationalism is still a, a blind patriotism. So you get people like Pete Buttigieg who rest on their military service when, when he runs for president, or you'll get Democrats going out of their way to respect the troops or the flag or whatever the symbol of U.S. sovereignty or identity might be. Um, but there there's a pluralism there that's also important to note, uh, where the U.S. isn't an exclusively Christian nation in itself, Um on the one hand, that pluralism is obviously better than conspiracy theory exclusivity for QAnon or something. Uh, and I think it's important to, to sort of note that. But on the other hand, it also blinds liberals to uh, sort of the persisting Christian supremacy of U.S. nationalism. Um, and this uh, veneer of progressivism makes liberals avoid interrogating the violence at the bottom of the national project of the U.S. or U.S. identity. Um, so let me just parse this out a little bit, and then we could maybe talk through it, Matt. Um, so one way of getting at this would be to say, you know, what's Christian about liberal nationalism? Obviously, not all liberals are Christians. They're, neither are all conservatives, for that matter. But there's a, a dangerous sort of universalism that kind of erases or conscripts differences into itself. Um, this might sound a little heady, but you might think of this as repeating the sort of logic that Amoria Armstrong talked to us about a long time ago where uh, Christianity often puts forward this this violent universalism, right? Everybody's welcome. And it pretends that all oppression is equalized, but that equalization only happens if you submit to Christ, which in the history of colonialism and racism turned out to be a pretty violent and supremacist mechanism. Um, so in the same way, since the U.S. is mostly Christian democratic or demographically, uh, Christianity gets taken as this kind of default way of being as well, Right. So uh, you, you get conscripted into this Christian liberal identity where the United States is this kind of overarching universalism. Uh, everybody should want to be part of it because it's a good thing, spreading good things around the world, etc. Um, and maybe just to underscore the, the Christian piece of this, too, uh, you know, the NSA just made a tweet about how a lot of people are giving things up for Lent in the next 40 days. Uh, but the NSA is still going to be there doing whatever it is they do for your national security. So, I mean, you, you can't Thank really... You. Thank you, NSA. Yeah, exactly. You, you you can't escape how deep Christianity is embedded by pretending it's not constitutive as a feature of hegemonic U.S. identity in a weird way, right? Like, it's always kind of haunting things, and we shouldn't sort of deny that by appealing to pluralism. Uh, more importantly, um, that pluralistic nationalism, like I said a second ago, also insulates liberals from asking how the U.S. became a nation in the first place and reproduces itself. So the U.S. is not a big melting pot where everybody gets a fair shot or equal opportunity. Um, you know, it's a settler society built on the genocide of indigenous people, the uh, violence and enslavement of violence against and enslavement of black people, mass incarceration, uh, this idea of Christian civilization combating godless communism, you know, spreading democracy and so on. All these things get sort of sewn together into whatever it means to be an American. So liberal nationalism covers all that stuff up with a sanitized picture of U.S. identity, you know, an aspirational picture. 
of U.S. identity, which it sees as a, a benevolent and kind force in the world. But the the aspirational side of that totally ignores the material realities of how that kind of identity gets put together. So uh, it's different from Trumpist Christian nationalism. Um, not, uh, you know, it, many of the material effects sort of work themselves out similarly, but it's importantly different in specificities uh, that we have to be able to attend to and figure out if we want to get rid of it. Yeah, I think it's a really good critique, um, given the prevalence of the religious left discourse that keeps popping up mm -hmm. uh, now that Biden's the president. I, I mean, pointing out the ways that uh, liberal Christian nationalism is 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 not the religious left um, is important because uh, it still, I mean, supports the larger structure of violence that the U.S. state is founded on. So um, a good critique to make, I think. Um well, okay, we have these two critiques on or these, these two pictures on the table. We have this the, the conservative view, we have the liberal view. Um, and that's fine. Dean, let's talk about maybe maybe the best way to to talk about like moving past these two views. Uh, maybe is just to to tell tell our own story, how we move past these two views or something. Yeah, yeah. Um uh I, I think that might be uh a funny way to do it. I don't know. Maybe I'm funny. I'm over, I'm overestimating how funny <laughs> my life is. <laughs> um, but I think that uh, these two views of, uh, you know, the relationship between Christians and the nation, or just like the default Christianness of the nation um, are things that uh, a lot of theologians and a lot of like sort of Christian political thinkers, I don't know how you want to frame these people um, have thought about and actually critiqued a lot of. Um, so let's see. Dean, let me tell you a story that I think that is probably pretty similar to your own. Um, I was an undergrad in college, and I had to read a book for a class by a guy named Stanley Hauerwas, and the book's called Resident Aliens. And this book, uh, at the time, really riled my cage, really shook my brain. <laughs> uh, I think it really uh, helped me question a lot of assumptions that uh, I think I made about um, politics and Christianity. Um, I grew up in a pretty conservative church. We've talked about this before. Um, you know, we had things like Fourth of July celebrations and Freedom Sundays where, um, you know, there was always a, an American flag in the um, in the sanctuary. Uh, we, we'd we'd honor the troops that come forward. We'd give them a big clap and it would be great. Um, but I think this book from Stanley Hauerwas, uh kind of reframed the way that I thought a lot about religion and the, its relationship to politics. Um, so the overarching idea behind this book is that Christians shouldn't be people like other people. <laughs> the The idea in Resident Aliens is that Christians should be a real particular type of community in the world um, that ultimately um, asserts uh, God's supremacy rather than the nation's supremacy. Uh, so um, I'm going to read a quick quote, Dean, and then maybe you can tell me if any of this makes sense in your life as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is uh, this is from Stanley Hauerwas's Resident Aliens, um, a book that I've read. We would like a church that, again, asserts that God, not nations, rules the world, that the boundaries of God's kingdom transcend those of Caesar, and that the main political task of the church is the formation of people who see clearly the cost of discipleship and are willing to pay the price. So there you go. Uh, you got you got this guy who's uh, who's suggesting that the type of world that Christians should want isn't the isn't one where uh, it matters who's president or who's who's the leader. It's uh, one where we ultimately see 
God and Jesus is sort of like the uh, the ultimate thing in the world. And then uh, being formed as a disciple of of Jesus um, means more than it uh, than than like who we vote for or um, our political formation. That's like the ultimate sort of thing. All right, Dean, does any of that make sense? Does any of that resonate with you and your own personal life? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, we talked a little bit about the Salters, for example, uh, after the election um, or after the inauguration. And uh, the Salters, if you don't know, were a, a Christian crest punk anarchist band um, that were basically responsible for giving me politics for a while, <laughs> um, for better and for worse. And they had a sort of similar thing here, right, where the the notion is that God's kingdom is not the same as earthly kingdoms and by which they definitely meant the United States in particular. And so, uh, yeah, the goal is to constantly out radicalize uh, everybody else around you by doubling down on your Christian identity as this really unique kind of way of being in the world that puts you totally out of step with uh, the, the way that, you know, the nation wants you to move around the world or something. And I think coming out of the Bush years as a young evangelical, that is a very compelling uh, story. And like you said, Matt, it, it, you know, it does disabuse you of some some bad conservative notions, bad nationalist notions that are running around in evangelicalism all the time. Um, so it is important to kind of pick that piece out, I think. You're right. It is a nice story. I agree. It is a helpful maybe jumping off point for Christians post Bush. <laughs> Um, but I'm going to read you another quote, Dean, that highlights some of the problems with this way of thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, this is also also from Stanley Hauerwas. Here we go. That which makes the church radical and forever new is not that the church tends to lean toward the left on most social issues, but rather that the church knows Jesus, whereas the world does not. In the church's view, the political left is not noticeably more interesting than the political right. Both sides tend to towards solutions that act as if the world has not ended and begun in Jesus. A real wild thing to say, honestly. <laughs> um, and also kind of a confounding thing to say. I don't, I don't really know what's, what, what it means that the political left is not noticeably more interesting than the political right. I mean, personally, I don't really want my politics to be interesting. I want people to be like fed and have houses and stuff <laughs> and not be in crushing debt. Uh, if that's boring, I, I think that's actually kind of boring, but um, no big deal. Anyways, this, uh, I think this way of thinking that um, Christians should be these particular type of people who um, don't think of themselves as citizens of a country or a, a nation, but think of them primarily as, uh, as disciples of Christ first has this other sort of hinge to it uh, that I think is represented here. We've talked about this a lot on the show um, whenever we've, uh, critiqued sort of liberal types of Christianity or people like Brian Zond or something. Um, this idea that, uh, you know, uh, it's not uh, being a Christian doesn't mean actually just being left wing politically. It means doing something completely different, completely radical, following Jesus in every way, but not in the political left kind of way or not in a way that <laughs> results in any kind of meaningful policy, but in this sort of vague, um, this vague discipleship kind of way. Um Dean has put it really well elsewhere that, uh, you know, fine sailing how Ross, this is all this is all OK with me. But like at the end of the day, who owns the means of production? And I think that's still um, the only retort I can really imagine to this. Uh, I don't I don't really know what some of this means, I think, materially, uh, which is why Dean's question is always, I think, a good one to ask in the face of these types of interventions into um, politics by Christians 
towards some kind of like third way or uh you know it, it's a good it's a good thing that they that Stanley Harwas intervenes into uh ideas of Christian nationalism because uh like we've said already they're bad but uh then um substituting in this other type of non-politics is probably also bad yeah yeah i think that's right um uh, I want to pivot us pretty soon to move on to talking about the good stuff. But before we do, just to add another layer here, I mean, um, Harawas is one one wild character in this whole cast of anti-nationalists. Um, and, you know, I think you're right, Matt, like the calling it a non-politics. I'm sure a lot of Harawasians will be pissed at that. But I think that is also fair to say. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's just how I feel. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing that I think is. Um, interesting about it is in the United States, it's very compelling in particular, right? Uh, the the Democrats are not more interesting than the Republicans. And if that's your frame for right and left, then sure. I don't know, like do something different. I don't care what it is. Sure. Get get out of there and go to church and I don't know, figure it out. Uh, but of course, it's not that simple, I guess. Um, one kind of piece of rhetoric that gets laid on top of this is the language of idolatry, which I think is also very interesting mm-hmm. and compelling. Uh, the person that I think is actually the most intriguing who articulates idolatry in the context of nationalism and the U.S. is a theologian named William Kavanaugh. Um, I think that he gets a lot of things very wrong in his theology in general, but I think that like he strikes me as somebody who's trying to figure it out in a way that is interesting, if not um, always on the mark. So anyway, uh, by way of example, in 2019, he wrote an essay in the Australian broadcasting company's website religion and ethics called uh, god and country the virtues and vices of nationalism and kavanaugh if you don't know anything about him he has a kind of pacifist anarchist uh uh part of him um that's pretty significant he's famously critical of the nation state as a kind of competitor for christian identity and it comes out really well in this article if you want to read it in more detail you can kind of get a sense of it there it's a good crystallization of this habit i think of trying to you know get out of the the bind of nationalism and patriotism altogether um but the key here is what kavanaugh argues and i think you see this in harawas too is that uh the the nation state is this kind of thing that demands your loyalty it demands your your behavior in a lot of ways it patterns your life in a lot of ways and in those demands it sets itself up as a an alternative to the identity and patterns and habits and behaviors that the church should be trying to put into you so this is a a competition of faiths basically you either have your faith in the nation and the nation state specifically or you have your faith in god and christianity and, and you have to sort of make that decision. And of course, you should choose the Christian decision because the other one is always violent, right? That's what Howard Watson Kavanaugh are always saying. The, the sort of key to idolatry is uh, it, it puts forward this way of violence as opposed to the church, which is a way of peace. Um, that's great rhetoric, but I think it's very thin as an analytic. And uh, here's my hottest take. If you take nothing away from this episode, I think this is the, the one thing that I'll put on the table and come back to that way of thinking makes sense in the United States for a lot of reasons. Uh, but it is profoundly us centric in a way that, uh, erases the struggles of people, especially in the global Mm -hmm. South, uh, and certain people in the United States too, right? That there are, there are versions of nationalism in the U S uh, kind of subaltern versions that are not the same as like hegemonic white identity or American nationalism itself. 
Um, so that's my soundbite for this one. Uh, Kavanaugh and Harawas, um, <laughs> compelling rhetoric, but ultimately uh, U.S. centric in a way that we should not be uh, chauvinists about. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, it is really interesting to kind of take uh, and and compare like the I don't know, like this Resident Alien books. I don't I, I know I said some mean things about it a minute ago and like I stand by them for sure. But it was a really good book that kind of helped me pivot out of thinking about the United States in a really particular way. But having learned more about the global church and other Christian movements in other countries, it is wildly um, U.S. centric in a way that I think would probably make Stanley Howard was really uncomfortable to point out. But I don't know, maybe not um, a good critique, though, for sure. Uh, you, you know, a book that's trying to escape the uh, the importance of nationalism does ignore uh, what's happening internationally quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, well, while this is maybe a great hinge to start talking about those other countries, but uh, just to keep going on that, I mean, one of the pr- most profound ironies of the Kavanaugh, Hauerwas, and other people's kind of approach is the whole point is to say the idea of U.S. nationalism so captivates our way of being that we, you know, we have to work very, very hard as Christians to extricate ourselves from that captivation. And on that point, mm-hmm. they're they're right. That's true. Yeah, I um, think so. Yeah, big time true. And and you know, it's important to to parse that out. But uh, at the same time, by stopping their analysis uh, where they stop, um, it sort of reveals that their own analysis is also hemmed in by the borders of the United States in this really you know, troubling way. So anyway, all that to say, you should continue to extricate yourself out of that U.S. Uh, captivation by learning about uh, other people in different parts of the world. Yeah, for sure. All right. So now let's let's use that hinge. We're going to take advantage of the hinge that we've just made and we're going to move <laughs> towards something else. OK, so we laid out all of these very interesting ways. <laughs> interesting is a, uh, a word doing a lot of heavy lifting that Christians who are evangelical, who are liberal, and who are doing something radically different uh, think think about nationalism and thinking about politics. Uh, but what about leftists? What about communists? What about socialists? How do they think about this whole thing? Um, I think that's a far more, I mean, an equally, an equally interesting question um, with, all, uh, with some heavy lifting there, too. Um, so, Dean, I don't know. How do you get us into this one? How do uh, how leftist Christians parse this out in ways that are different than uh, Christians in the United States uh, have done it? Thinking from material uh, situations that are not our own are always the best way into this. And uh, I, I should say I should quickly back up. So William Kavanaugh, one thing that's so wild about him is that he did write a whole book about Chile, um, but I think failed to internalize the most important political lessons of that situation anyway that's a that's a another hot take for all you Kavanaugh heads out there and i'm not going to develop it right now <laughs> um but let me turn to uh nicaragua which is of course one of our favorite topics on this podcast um because i think they present a much different form of nationalism than we are used to and something that's a lot more interesting to interrogate so for folks who don't know uh nicaragua um had a, a long history of colonization of course like everywhere else in the americas Um, and eventually they won independence from Spain, but they were pretty quickly absorbed into the U.S. uh, empire in the early 20th century. And in that struggle, uh, as the U.S. was trying to occupy Nicaragua in the 1930s, there was a guy named Augusto Sandino 
who uh, tried to oppose the occupying United States through all kinds of guerrilla warfare. And to make a long story short, he lost. But Sandino became a, a national hero in the Nicaraguan imagination, so much so that the revolutionary movement that eventually delivered Nicaragua from its dictatorship at the time was called the Sandinistas in uh, honor of Sandino. So we always talk about Ernesto Cardinal, our favorite uh, liberation theologian, who was a part of the Sandinista movement, part of the Sandinista government. Um, and what's really fascinating, I think, about the Sandinistas as a lesson in thinking through nationalism is uh, we always think about the Sandinistas as an example of Christianity and Marxism coming together in these really interesting ways. It's also a great example of uh, Marxism and nationalism coming together in really interesting ways. So uh, immediately after the Nicaraguan uh, revolution the Sandinistas succeeded in carrying that out. Uh, they were put on the defensive as the U.S. started training all these other people called the Contras to try to topple that government. And so the country had to really like go to work right away uh, building a new identity that could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe against imperialism, right? To build a, a unified people that was willing to um, hold on to the gains that they had made. Um, so I've been reading uh, this really fantastic book, um, kind of fortuitously, I guess, for this conversation, uh, but it is called Sandino's Nation by a guy named Stephen Hennigan. It is extremely long, <laughs> uh, an intimidatingly big book, but it's about Ernesto Cardinal and also Sergio Ramirez. Um, Ramirez was a politician. Cardinal, of course, is a priest. Anyway, the whole book is basically premised around these two uh, political figures who are also writers thinking through uh, the Nicaraguan identity. What is it? What should it be? How should it work? And they worked that out in poetry, prose, in literature, novels, all these kinds of different ways, and then, of course, through governance. Um, so I want to read a quick passage from the book that I think will allow us to maybe say some interesting things uh, here. So hang on, let me find it. All right, talking about uh, Ramirez, Hennigan says this. Uh, he's talking about like a, a piece of writing of Ramirez where he's sort of working out these these ideas. Uh, Ramirez bends class analysis in creative ways that are both intellectually impressive and politically astute when he circumvents the dilemma of applying this tool to a nation that in the early 20th century did not have an articulated social class structure. He tells the manager trainees, Sandino's struggle against the Yankees is not the struggle of the national bourgeoisie against the U.S. military occupation, but rather the struggle of the people as a class, which takes up arms to defend the nation and nationality. The ingenious sleight of hand enables Ramirez to restore to the FSLN's progenitor the credentials of class struggle, hence of a dialectical engagement with history hence of an authentic revolutionary movement capable of inspiring support among young revolutionaries in Nicaragua and left-wing internationalists abroad by claiming the entire Nicaraguan nation as a unified social class. Let me read a little bit more. Paradoxically, this maneuver cements Sandinismo's bourgeois nationalist appeal at the same time that it refutes any suspicion that, Sandinista, that Sandinismo might be merely bourgeois nationalism. Furthermore, by defining all Nicaraguans as a single social class, Ramirez has prepared the ground for the notion that deviation from revolutionary duty is treasonous. The assumption echoes one of Fidel Castro's basic principles, first articulated in his 53 speech, History Will Absolve Me, where Castro says, We are Cubans, and to be Cuban implies a duty 
not fulfilling it is a crime and is treason. Uh, so there's a lot of complicated things going on here, right? And lots of things that I think will probably make certain Christians nervous. Uh, we should talk through that for a moment. But uh, I think what's really fascinating here is um, this idea that there needs to be a new sort of national identity that gets formed, uh, one that doesn't exclude class consciousness, but actually sees uh, the Nicaraguan people as a certain class that also has to be defended, that can become a class in itself. Um, that's not very orthodox Marxism, but a really fascinating development in an anti-colonial struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the assumption here is that Nicaragua is basically having to create itself uh, from scratch on the fly as it's being attacked uh, from all sides. Um, so in that kind of context, uh, nationalism functions materially in this really curious way um, by drawing a lot of diverse people into one struggle and also by uh, basically encouraging people to uh, see themselves as part of that struggle. Um, okay, I'm going to stop talking there, Matt, but let's uh, break this down a little bit. Um, Nicaragua, uh, nationalism, what does this do for us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying there, it, it is complicated. A lot of things going on for sure, <laughs> um, as, as so many things are, very complicated. But um, I think that what you're saying here, though, is really really borne out in in uh cardinal's poetry even right mm-hmm. so um ernesto cardinal we're talking about him again um <laughs> we love this guy we can't get <laughs> enough of him real cardinal heads over here so uh in case you haven't been listening to the podcast very long ernesto cardinal he was a priest and then he wasn't a priest when he joined the sandista revolution <laughs> um after uh the revolution he um became the minister of culture we've kind of said these things um but a really important part of cardinal's life was his poetry um that was like uh i guess his main creative output i don't know he probably did other things too but his poetry is like what everyone knows about um i think what's really interesting though is that um okay i'm i'm not like a, a scholar of cardinal's poetry but i've read some of it and i think it's really fascinating because it kind of brings to light this uh, the creation of a sort of national identity um, th- that you're talking about here. It, it kind of makes sense of some of that. So um, something that's worth noting is that like some of the poetry that Cardinal writes like before the revolution and kind of like leading up to it and during the revolution is really interesting because it constitutes the people of, of Nicaragua as revolutionary subjects. So like, for example, um, there's this one of my favorite books of poetry by Cardinal is just a book called Psalms. And it's so fun and interesting because it's really Cardinal just rewriting Psalms, but from the perspective of of Nicaragua and of of the revolution. And what you get are these really interesting imprecatory Psalms that are like um, basically prayed against um, the Somoza regime. And he's always asking like, God, like, when are you going to come save your people? You know, you've you've never um, you don't switch sides. You're always on the side of the oppressed. And uh, look, we're being oppressed right now. Come come get us. And each poem is like is written like that, too. Like uh, it's sort of in the format of a psalm with the with the psalm themes, but always um, framing the Nicaraguan people in the revolution as sort of the subjects needing God's liberation. So that's one thing. But then when you move to other types of poetry from Cardinal, you get sort of more interesting um, ways that he's sort of building uh, a certain type of, yeah, I mean, national identity. Um, There's another book of his poem called Flights of Victory. And it's a really fascinating book of poems because it um, starts off with like the, um, you know, in the midst of sort of revolution writing. 
and then moves uh, the poetry kind of moves through the the revolution. There's one poem that Dean and I talk about a lot <laughs> called Mystical Vision of the Letters FSLN. Um, and it's this really short piece uh, and it's kind of narrative in the way that Cardinal's poems often are. But it's like, you know, uh, Ernesto Cardinal is riding in this car with this little boy and uh, and the boy points out that uh, on the side of the hill are these big letters that spell out the name of a brand of shoes. And the boy's like, well, you know, after the revolution, is this still going to be there? And um, he's like, no, it won't. But maybe who knows? Who knows if we'll even win? And then the the poem ends with uh, Cardinal driving uh, or like being driven. I don't know. <laughs> and seeing the letters FSLN in, in place of the advertisement. And he's, he takes that as a sign from God saying, like, look, this is what I this is what I've done for you. I've delivered the Nicaraguan people out of the revolution, out of the hands of Somoza towards, um, you know, this this new society that you're building. So I, I think all that to say that, like the. Um, there's an interesting type of national identity that Cardinal starts building in his poetry and like he uh, poetry ends up being this huge thing in Nicaragua that a lot of people learn to do and it becomes a big part of uh, the cultural production of the country too. So all that to say though that like uh, in Cardinal's poetry in in the sort of primacy of poetry as a type of cultural output um, we see how um, we, we see the character I guess of of the type of identity in the uh, in the revolutionary society that the Sandinistas end up building. And uh, it ends up being a pretty fascinating thing that is wildly different than uh, the nationalism of the United States. Nationalisms are always made up, but they're not always made up in the same way or for the same purpose. Uh, so U.S. nationalism, I think, is a uh, thoroughly compromised kind of nationalism. Um, you can't really have a healthy version of it. Uh, it's always a, a brutal um, hegemonic discourse in terms of what it means to be you know, an American in some chauvinistic way. Uh, Nicaraguan nationalism in terms of the Sandinista movement is different because uh, it's the premise of building a collective uh, unity based on the premise of self-determination, resistance to imperialism, building a better society, etc. Uh, and you see that being invented on the fly by people like Cardinal and Ramirez uh, in real time, you know, in, in a way that is intentional. Um, I think it's also worth sort of pointing out that uh, anti-colonial struggles in general have a different national character than colonial nationalisms. Um, you know, you can think of like the Algeri Algerian War or a number of other anti-colonial wars where the nation that's foisted on to people, the national unity that's basically forced onto people through the process of colonization ends up being the, the tool that's produced by the colonizer that is their own downfall, right? Which is a classic sort of Marxist mm. story. Um, and I yeah. think that it's important to recognize that, that when we're talking about nationalism uh, in the abstract, you know, we're not talking about um, the same phenomenon in the U.S. as what's going on in like the 80s in Nicaragua. This is not, uh, could, could you be, could you maybe become an idolater of revolutionary Nicaragua? Like probably, sure, <laughs> I guess. Um, I'm sure that's possible and, and does happen and did happen. Uh, but it's important to note that also uh, to be a Sandinista, to throw in with the Nicaraguan people in that way, um, was also an expression of what it meant to be a Christian living out of step with the world in a certain way, right? And uh, that's mm. something that um, Christians on the left have to be able to sort of think that in that complicated way. Yeah, that's good. I'm going to send Stanley Hauerwas a book of Ernesto Cardinal's poems to see what he thinks. <laughs> See if that left-wing politics is interesting to him. Um, right. Probably not. 
<laughs> well, um, man, there's there's a ton more that we go into. Let's really quickly. Um, well, not too quickly, though. Talk about the three self movement in China, um, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a really important um, and interesting manifestation of nationalism and Christianity, um, but in a way that is anti-imperialist as well. Um, China is a very complicated place. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a lot going on there for sure. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people uh, are ambivalent toward it. And I don't know. We're not here to make those types of judgments for sure. We're here to talk about the three self movement in China. Uh, Dean, do you want to do you want to introduce us here, and then I'll, we can we can talk about KH Ting and his good things that he has to say. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's a great movement to bring up in the nationalist conversation. So the the three self movement came out of what would have been like the social gospel movement in China, basically at the time um, in the forties, in particular. And as uh, the communist revolution was underway, the social gospelers had to decide if they wanted to get in on it or not. And a lot of them decided to get in on it. They didn't want to be colonized either. And so as part of their Christianity, they wanted to, to, to do that. Uh, the condition, though, for basically participating in the communist uh, popular front was not that you be a communist right away, but at the very least that you be an anti-imperialist. And they decided, yes, we can do that as Christians. And so they came up with this thing called the three self movement. The three selves are uh, as follows. One is they would be self-financing. They wouldn't receive any foreign monies. They would be self-propagating. So they wouldn't have any foreign missions. They would just do that themselves. And they would be self-governing. So they wouldn't answer to like bishops or other authorities abroad. So the whole premise of it is, could we create an indigenous Chinese Christianity that reproduces itself in a Chinese way, also in accordance with this liberation movement that is happening for specifically the people of China? Um, That's it in brief. Uh, What else should we pull out there, Matt? Yeah, that is it in brief. Uh, The three selves, my favorite, my favorite three right there. (laughs) Um, yeah, you know, here, let's just give some character to what some of this might mean and look like in terms of nationalism um, from K.H. Ting, who is um, one of the, the the figures in the three self movement that ends up being really important. I don't know. Dean, do you want to say anything about K.H. Ting? I feel like you're more qualified than I am to talk about him. Sure. He we did an episode about him a while back. You can listen to um, he was the leader of the three self movement for a really long time after the Cultural Revolution, which is a whole wild conversation. Um but a fascinating character. He was an Anglican bishop, um, which is also really fascinating for a lot of reasons. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so he was the he led the three self patriotic movement for a long time. Um, he built a lot of international solidarity relationships. His job was basically trying to figure out how to be a Christian uh, participating in the revolutionary project of China. That's great. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, OK, here's uh, here's a blurb about patriotism from K.H. Ting in an uh, essay he wrote called Retrospect and Prospect. Um, and listen, you're going to hear it and it's going to make you at first wince and you're going to be like, I don't like this, but wait till the end and maybe you'll like it better. And all I have to say, it, it draws out kind of an interesting character of the three self movement in a way to think about nationalism in terms uh, in a way that's maybe anti-imperialist. So K.H. Ting says this patriotism is a good word. It hurts. I, I can't even. <laughs> but all right. Your inner Harawas um, is just screaming. <laughs> Wolf, I don't like that. Um, okay. Patriotism is a good word. Moses, Daniel, and many other prophets in the Bible were patriotic. If you say so. 
In Western countries, however, abuse of this word has caused many righteous people to loathe it so that as soon as they hear the word patriotism, they think of national chauvinists who bully weak nations. That's exactly what I think of. Um, of those diehards who wave banners for reactionary governments crying, this is my country, right or wrong. As for us, we would see, first of all, what a country has wrought for its broad masses before we make any evaluation of it. Okay, so this is uh, K.H. Ting kind of getting into it. Patriotism for him, he thinks it's good as long as the country is not is not bad, <laughs> um, which is uh, a nuanced approach that I think is uh, was was a little bit too much for my brain, even just reading that. But um, I think that there's something interesting going on there. Let me let me read a little bit more here from from Cage Ting. This Christianity the of the three self movement does not take European and American Christianity as the norm. But it is also not anti-foreign. While affirming the universality of Christianity, we understand that Chinese Christianity cannot talk of making contributions to world Christianity unless it rids itself of its colonial nature, ceases to be a replica of foreign Christianity, does not antagonize or disassociate or alienate itself from the cause of, of Chinese people, but joins them in cause, plants its roots in Chinese culture, forms a Chinese self, and becomes a Chinese entity. Okay. So I think in these two things, we have uh, uh, we, we can see a certain characteristic of the three self movement as of being nationalist and patriotic at the same time, um, while also not being national chauvinist. I think it's a really interesting thing to start disentangling some of those terms because K.H. Ting is exactly right. Um, when I hear the word patriotism, I think of um, of big ding dongs waving flags saying my country right or wrong. Um, but what KH Ting is challenging us to do is thinking of, um, first of all, Christianity in a way that's disentangled from um, uh, not a replica of European or American Christianity um, that uh, that is, um, you know, of the people that um, are practicing it. I think that's a really fascinating project, one that uh, I think uh, I mean, you know, I, I think just like you said in, in Nicaragua, you know, could fall prey to a lot of the same things that uh, American Christianity could. But um, it's it's kind of trying to inoculate itself from some of the worst traits of uh, the Christian nationalism of the United States. Yeah, I mean, that's the key to this, too. Right. Um, Ting is putting it positively here, right, saying patriotism is, is a good word. But that positivity is also only against the backdrop, really, of anti-imperialism again. Right. That. Uh, you you want to be so intentional about becoming a, a Chinese people precisely because you haven't been allowed to be uh, Chinese Christians, right? It's uh, uh, the idea is that by linking themselves to that anti-colonial thrust of uh, the Chinese project, uh, they could also find out something about what it means to be Christian uh, because the world is complicated. Um, I think you know it's uh, it's totally true, like. Does the three self movement sometimes probably make bad compromises with like the Chinese government or like certain versions of Chinese identity? Like, I don't know, maybe probably can I could I imagine it happening? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, do I know that it happens? I can't say that because I'm just a guy with a podcast. Um, but I guess at the same time, it's important to recognize that uh uh, the national struggle in a place like China does not have the same historical dimensions as the national identity of the United States or, or Europe or whatever else. Um, so again, it's just kind of one more point of being like, uh, is the nation good? <laughs> if it is, you should uh, mm -hmm. maybe throw in with it. I always think of um, Cuba, their national motto is uh, country or death, fatherland or death. Um which is a pretty nationalist thing. It's not uh, the Cuban proletariat or death, 
It's not, uh, you know, all kinds of other things that it could be. Um, it is like this is the island that we live on and we're going to defend that place specifically, th- those people, that country. Um, and it's not the case that uh, the national struggle supersedes the socialist struggle, um, but it's a recognition that in a, a world where capitalist countries bully lots of other countries and they do that structurally with all the infrastructure of colonialism, uh, it matters that people sort of take that identity and do what they want with it rather than allowing it to be something that does whatever it does to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, it's such a challenge <laughs> for, I think, people in, uh, you know, the imperial core countries to really like read those words and make sense of them, though. I mean, I don't know. It's just such a it is such a challenge. You read something about Cuba um, and people being patriotic or you read about their, uh, you know, the national motto or whatever. It's just such a um, it's such a hard place to get your brain to be like, what if the government was not your enemy? (laughs) What if if the the people who are guarding capitalism, um, what if they weren't there? What if if they're doing something good? It's just such a a hard thing to imagine. Um, (laughs) But that's what we're being challenged to do. And I appreciate that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, It's also, it's just important to recognize too that... um, you know, what it means to be a Christian person in that kind of country is just different. And uh, to also underscore that just because they can like do it in Cuba does not mean that you should do it in the US. I think, you know, you see this on Twitter every once in a while, like uh, some some like communist in the United States who is like, uh, it's the the version of like husband, father, Christian uh, Twitter or whatever, but it's like communist American proud patriot Twitter or something. And it's like, look, there's no reason to salvage this identity. The only nationalisms, if you're asking me, the only national, which you're not, but I'm telling you anyway, (laughs) um, the only nationalisms (laughs) in the United States that have ever been good are indigenous struggles, which are very important, uh, black nationalisms, which are complicated, but also very important. Uh, the, uh, the national conversation in the communist party USA around, uh, the black belt and, uh, anti-colonial national struggles in places like Puerto Rico or Hawaii or places like that. I think, you know, if it's not coming from these sorts of uh, struggles against what it means to be an American, what against what it means to hegemonic, hegemonic, hegemonically, that sounds more vile. So I'm just going to go with that uh, <laughs> to, to define yourself that way as an American. I think it's those struggles. That's where nationalism in the U S has some, some meaning and, and purchase, but uh, you know, uh, you should not go around saying, uh, yes, I'm a proud patriot communist American. <laughs> it's just not good. Not good for anybody. It is uh, not good for anybody. You're right. Um, all right. Well, we couldn't have a conversation about nationalism and Christianity and socialism without talking about the Christians for National Liberation. Mm-hmm. Um Christians for National Liberation are a part of the National Democratic Front of the Philippines. Um, They actually, very recently, um, what day was it? February 17th, they celebrated the 49th anniversary of the Christians for National Liberation. That's right, this 50-year-old, this nearly (laughs) 50-year-old movement of Christian communists who are also malice in the Philippines has existed for a very long time. And you probably didn't even know about it. Um, (laughs) Isn't that wild? Um, So the CNL is extremely interesting. Um, We'll definitely talk about them a little bit more down the line. We've done an episode on them a very long time ago, but um, you know, we could always do more because who knows, maybe we got something wrong 
Probably not. We'll but, talk to somebody who actually um, knows what they're talking about this next time. There, that's that's <laughs> it. That's the one I'm looking for. What's so interesting about the CNL, though, is that they've literally thrown themselves in with the communists. They um, are on the side of the um, the National Democratic Front of the Philippines, which is a, a large sort of coalition of organizations. Um, but they're all oriented around um, the Communist Party of the Philippines, which is uh, follows a line of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're actively involved in a uh, struggle for national liberation. Um, and they've they've done the same kind of negotiation of, of national identity and Christian identity that these other organizations and groups that we've kind of talked about already have a really fascinating example of Christians who've already done this work that we're kind of coming to now. Um, but in a way that is, uh, I don't know, I think uh, really fascinating. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what what always sticks out to me about them in terms of the national issue is, again, like it's not Christians for uh, the proletarian liberation. I mean, they want that, obviously. Um, but the fact that it is a national democratic front is uh, it, it forces us to ask questions about nationalism. I think for me, it's always what what does the nation do in this particular context? Right. What what does the idea of the nation do? What does the nationalism do? How does it function? Um in a place like the U.S., it always does bad things. Uh, the nation does bad stuff. Um, but in this context, uh, in the Philippines, the idea of having a national democratic front is able to pull together all kinds of people for the struggle without forcing them to like sign on the dotted line of every single point of like a particular brand of, I don't know, some kind of communism at first. I think over time it's coalesced quite a lot and it's a little more ideologically synchronous across the, the board. But um, it's interesting that it's the national struggle that provides this point of unity, which there's a lot of interesting stuff on the national question in, in Maoism in general. Um, that's probably important to parse out. We don't have time to do it here. But in any case, the point is that the nation, as long as it's not an end in itself, right, as long as it's uh, put toward... Uh, a broader horizon of liberation. Uh, I think that is something that's always worth sort of thinking through in a complicated way. Um, Marx and Engels, you know, the 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 working people have no country. They say that. Um, but they also spend a lot of time talking about national struggles and uh, pulling them in together. Um, I think Christians also need to sort of see the nation as a political tool or strategy rather than necessarily always the same, always idolatrous in the same way, always dangerous in the same way. Uh, we owe it to Christians in other parts of the world to not be so chauvinistic, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, it is really good to bring up Marx and Engels, actually. Um, I mean, the CNL and the National Democratic Front in the Philippines, um, you know, they have a, a particular ideology that I think surpasses Marx. But even Marx and Engels wrote in the Communist Manifesto that uh, uh, this is kind of a famous line that I actually really love. Uh, Not in substance, yet in form. The struggle for the proletariat with the bourgeoisie is at first a national struggle. The proletariat of each country must, of course, first settle all matters with its own bourgeoisie. Um, kind of recognizing, though, exactly I mean, what we're saying here, that uh, that, that national struggle at first is really important. That um, if, if you ever want to be if you want to be an international socialist, you got to figure out the bourgeoisie in your own country first. <laughs> um, and I think it's a uh, an important sort of like revolutionary note, I suppose, that uh, the Christians for National Liberation uh, certainly have uh, committed themselves to. And, and so, the, I mean, the, the National Democratic Front of the Philippines has as well. Um, but yeah, it is definitely a challenge, I think, to just for um, 
Christians, for leftists, for whoever in the uh, the imperial core to kind of think through um, national struggles and not get caught up in our own uh, baggage about them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, why don't we wrap this up a bit? Let's see. Um, here's the here's where I'm at, and then we'll see if you're there also, Matt, or if you want to go somewhere else as we close this off. <laughs> this, this choose your own adventure ending. Um, okay. You know, uh, like we said at the top, I think it makes sense that the reaction against the, the awful power of the United States as a nation, uh, the reaction against that to say nationalism must be idolatrous. And so I should double down on Christianity as a way out. I think the, the intuition there, there's a good moment in it, which is to say this whole project is so ugly that I want absolutely no part of it. However, uh, the bad part of the intuition is to say that there's a, a pure space outside. If I just kind of quietly become a Christian or li- even loudly become a Christian, everything will kind of sort itself out. Um, I think that is uh, naive, but also ignores, again, the political struggles of others. Uh, at the end of the day, um, saying that the nation is idolatrous is not going to liberate the people of Nicaragua from the Somoza dynasty. It's not going to liberate the people in the Philippines from what's going on under Duterte right now. Uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't have uh, the kind of political uh, utility that you need. And it's not to say that theology should always follow political utility, but it's to say that uh, the material conditions should actually force us to complicate our theologies and the question of the nation is a very complicated one, but uh, one that we should sort of always follow the lead of uh, people who are actually doing it out there in the world rather than uh, theology books that we read as undergraduates. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I think, uh, I think I'm in the same place. Uh, That's where you went and I'm there too. The appeal of uh, people like William Kavanaugh or Stanley Hauerwas is that it reaches for a radicality beyond radicality. And um, that that's at least the, re- the way the rhetoric is set up, right? You just need uh, above whether you are, you know, instead of being a Democrat or Republican or a socialist, you should just be a disciple of Jesus. And that is actually the most radical thing that you can do. Um, I have a I have a former colleague uh, who uses the phrase, you know, the the point of being a Christian is to live a cruciform life. And, um, <laughs> you know, one of those very fancy ways of saying that you should, you know, you should be uh, a sort of complete sort of disciple of Christ, do do things that Jesus teaches you to do, and, and that and that kind of thing. But it's wild that um, this thing that is super radical, um, <laughs> like, uh, like living a cruciform life, or however you really want to put it, um, yeah, just like you said, Dean does not do the the liberating work of these other ways of thinking about Christianity and these other ways of thinking about nationalism. Um, and I don't know. I think that uh, the impulse is good um, for sure to take Christianity very seriously, to to take the idea of discipleship very seriously. I guess, but uh, if at the end of the day, um, living a cruciform life doesn't mean um, changing who owns the the means of production and uh, and uh, questioning colonial powers and ultimately getting rid of them. I don't know. Like, it doesn't sound very radical to me. It doesn't sound even like very Jesus-y to me. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it's a it's a these these ways that Christians have been involved in national liberation movements, I think, actually offer a really helpful counter to the ways that, uh, yeah, post-liberal theologians end up thinking about uh, uh, politics wrongly. And uh, that's why they're good. 
Yeah, so there you have it. No to Trump, no to Biden, no to the Republicans and Democrats, but yes to the Sandinistas for sure. Uh, that's the it's too long for a sticker, but that's the bumper sticker of this one, I think. <laughs> it's a good it's a good big bumper sticker for the back <laughs> of my very big, beautiful truck. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. If you go there, you can get in on a Discord server that we have where we have lots of cool conversations about episodes and more stuff. Uh, we also do another podcast there called The Lock-In about current events and just kind of goofing around. You can check that out, too. You can find us on Twitter at The Magnificast. You can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. Our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Besides, what else are 